I'm Jeff Cohen. It's not a far stretch to get from yoga to self-exploration and growth. For Erica Needleman, what started as a passion for practicing and teaching yoga eventually turned into a deeper search for meaning and joy, something she now helps others achieve as a life coach. And Erica is here today to share her story, so let's get started. Erica, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. I loved your pun with the stretch. That was so good. <laughs> Thank you. I was going to apologize for it, actually, so I'm glad no, you appreciate it. No, you shouldn't. It. I love dad puns. I have a very special place in my heart for um, for all of those. Those are the best. Okay. So. I appreciate you making the time, and we're going to get to know you a little bit through a whole series of questions I got of your life story and your journey. So let's take it from the beginning and set some context in terms of where you were born and raised. I grew up in Wilton, Connecticut, which is not a Jewish area. It's about 20 minutes from Stanford. I didn't know that Orthodox Jews existed. I grew up reform. We had to drive 15, 20 minutes to the nearest synagogue. I grew up with a father who was a big searcher and that whole side of the family. So I'm my father and my mother's second marriage, my mother's first and only child, my father's third child. Mm -hmm. So my father was this incredible searcher for his whole life. There was like, he became an ordained Baptist minister at one point because he had this mentor that he was very close to. And then there was some sort of Swami with a peacock feather. <laughs> and there was like, I mean, he did all the things. He went to all the retreats. He did all of the landmarks. He did all of the things, right? And my mom, also very spiritual, but not as much as my father, but also very strongly Jewishly oriented. So she enforced Judaism in the household. She said, you're going to go to Hebrew school. You're going to have a bat mitzvah. It really showed me actually from an early age, the importance of the mother, because my two sisters from my father's previous marriage, they had a mother who was not interested in Judaism. And my father, because of that, didn't do anything Jewish. When he married my mom, he went Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. There was always a Seder. There was always Hanukkah. He followed the strong woman in his life. So very thankfully, my mother was a very strong Jewish presence. Although she didn't have such an education in Judaism, she felt very strongly Jewish. What kind of school were you attending growing up? And in relation to that, you talked about going to Hebrew school. So like, what were your feelings towards Judaism as a, like a younger kid? Amazing question. So I actually, I listened to Rabbi Lynn's podcast, the one that you did sure. the other week, because I know him and I saw his name and said, oh my gosh, I have to listen. So he said something about how all the kids like got on a bus and went off to, I don't know, I think like for us, it was CCD, like all of the cool kids, like all the Catholic kids, they got on the bus after school and they went to CCD and it was this cool, cool thing for all the Catholics to go and do that. And I went to Hebrew school and I was miserable. I went to a public school my parents moved to Wilton because it was one of the best public schools in the country. And it was a fantastic secular education. I really credit a lot of my abilities to that education as well as, you know, moving forward in high school. And Jewishly, I was kind of forced into going into Hebrew school and it was not very exciting, uplifting, meaningful, or deep. So I got my bat mitzvah. I wasn't so into it. Of course, everyone wants the party, but all of the prep. I remember because I was supposed to lane, I kept on doing less and less and less than I said I was going to do. I like. <laughs> I think I ended up laning three lines. I was like, this is not what I want to be doing. And the cantor just kind of did the rest for me, which was very nice of him. So it just, it wasn't a meaningful experience on so many levels. It was very meaningful when my parents spoke 
at the bat mitzvah to me, it was very beautiful. Like that part of the relationship was lovely, but Jewishly, I did not feel inspired. So then we had um, confirmation classes and I was having this whole thing of, do I get confirmed? Do I not get confirmed? And I thought to myself, you know what? The Holocaust happened and I don't want to just be another check off on Hitler's list and I am going to be confirmed. I'm going to affirm that I'm Jewish and that I care. But looking back, that's so sad that that was the thing that got me to do it. There was nothing pulling me towards Judaism. It was just pulling me away from not being Jewish. It wasn't that there was anything positive. It wasn't that there was anything relevant. It wasn't that there was anything meaningful or inspiring. And thank God, since that's changed. Yes, I'm sure we're going to find out as the story continues to unfold. I think this does a really nice job of setting the stage for how you feel about Judaism, like in those teen years and post-Bat Mitzvah. So I also mentioned in the introduction, this interest in yoga. So does that kick in around that same time period? Yes, when I was 14. So when I was 14, I completely randomly got put into a yoga class at this sort of school fair where they had you go to different rooms and do different things. And I took this yoga class and I did the relaxation at the end. And I remember getting up and thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't know I was able to feel like this. That sense of calm, that sense of clarity, and just everything else sort of drifting away. I was completely hooked. I said, I need to do this all the time. So I go home to my mom. I said, Mom, we have to start doing yoga. <laughs> and so we very soon found this wonderful woman who actually taught classes at the YMCA near us. Her name was Janice, and she was an incredible yoga teacher. And I started going weekly and maybe even a couple times a week. And it was a huge deal for me. That year, I was the only freshman on varsity softball. And I was so overwhelmed by how intense it was and how they wanted you to cry if you messed up and how you had to just take everything so seriously. And it was so not me. And then I went from that world into yoga. And I was like, this is much more my style. <laughs> So that's when the yoga thing started. And I really started calling Janice and talking to her and asking her questions. And after speaking to her and asking her my questions and talking to her about, you know, issues and things I was going through, I slowly got to realize, oh, she's not the same person at home as she is in the yoga studio. And that was very sad for me because in the yoga studio, she was a spiritual mentor. She was calm and capable and connected and all of these beautiful things. So it was that experience. So I kept looking at my yoga teachers over the years as I got older, as I went into college, you know, I just kept going to the yoga teachers, kept going, and they all were worse than her. I mean, she was the best. <laughs> but wait, what? Everyone else was a disaster. And I was just kind of floored because even then I could tell I want someone consistent in all arenas as my mentor. I want someone who is the same at home as they are in the classroom who has the same values and lives those values, doesn't just talk about them and then, you know, walk off the floor. But why did you feel like you would find it necessarily in a yoga instructor? Like at the age that you're at at that point, you could be a teacher. It could be someone, you know, through the Hebrew school you've been a part of. It could be... Oh, no, you know, not the Hebrew school. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not the Hebrew school. But I understand, okay, you're, you're doing yoga and you're feeling that connection there. So maybe you're thinking that's where the mentor might come from. But were you looking in other places as well? As I got older, I did. I really looked to my professors when I went to Arizona State. I was in the Honors College. I had some really fantastic honors 
professors, and I also had some really wonderful religious studies teachers who were Jewish. It happens to be in the Jewish studies program at Arizona State, I think I was the only Jew. It was all Mormons. But the teachers were Jewish. But I did look to my professors, and I did create strong relationships with my professors, but it did not end up being that they were the people that I wanted to emulate at the end of the day. So one thing that I just want to clarify, you just mentioned going to Arizona State and being a Jewish studies major, but there's nothing in your story so far that would tell me you're the kind of person who would become a Jewish studies major, because the last thing you talked about religion, it didn't seem like it was clicking for you. So what, what changed, I guess, either in high school or the beginning of college? So rewinding to my first year of college, I basically took all of the courses that sounded the coolest. I took a religion and psychology course. I took Latin American revolutionaries, philosophers and poets. I took like, I actually ended up taking a bunch of religious studies courses because I was just gravitating to it. And by the end of that year, I realized I really wanted to be a yoga teacher. And I also wanted to do some volunteering abroad. So I signed up for a yoga teaching certification program at an ashram for that summer. It was a 200-hour training program in the Catskills in New York, and I basically immersed myself in a Hindu life. <laughs> I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I meditated. I studied all of their philosophy. So I was there. All the Avodazara was happening. We were having all of these chantings and all of the things, and I was learning to be a yoga teacher. But by the end of the month, my back really hurt from sitting on the floor so much. <laughs> and it just was not the spiritual experience that I was hoping for. I then flew to the Dominican Republic and find myself in what I had, unbeknownst to me, volunteered to work on a Christian mission. So I literally went from the ashram to the mission house, and I just was kind of stunned by the whole experience. I was like, why wouldn't they tell me <laughs> that I was going to be with the missionaries? You know, that's something that I feel like would be an important piece of information for someone to have when volunteering. But you know what? Man plans, God laughs. And it was a very special experience. So Dominican Republic is one landmass, and next to it is Haiti. So it's one island. So with Dominican Republic on one side, Haiti on the other. Haiti has no natural resources. So a lot of the Haitians go to the Dominican Republic as refugees. So there's a ton of these Haitian refugees in the Dominican Republic, and they live on less than a dollar a day. There's a lot of prostitution. There's a lot of issues. It's very sad. So basically, this very wonderful Christian organization but a gigantic plot of land, builds houses, teaches women trades. They give them food. They give them medical treatment. And I really felt very connected to the people. And they, of course, had a church. You didn't have to go to church, but it was offered. So I went to church and I was watching these people pray. And I said, you know what? There's something here. The Jesus thing, I can't get behind that, but there's something here. And before that, I hadn't believed in God. And seeing these people who live on nothing, who are truthfully so much happier than almost everyone else that I know in America, who live these simple lives, who have a connection with God, I was really moved by that. So then I'm talking to the missionaries, and they're asking me a bunch of questions because I'm this anomaly. I'm this Jewish girl 
who is teaching yoga every morning to all of the people who want to, you know, learn yoga. And they keep saying, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And what do you believe about the afterlife? And what do you believe about this? And I would say, well, in Hinduism, da 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 In Hinduism, da 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 right? I would give all of the Hindu answers. And they kept saying, but you're Jewish, right? What did Jews believe? And I was like, I don't really know. And it was embarrassing. And really, I give the missionaries a tremendous amount of credit for making me a religious Jew in the end, because they were the ones who really showed me, wow, I'm walking away from Judaism. And it's a similar feeling to what I was thinking when I had that confirmation process when I was in Hebrew school. I'm walking away, but I'm not walking away from something I know about. I'm walking away from something I don't know anything about. I'm replacing it with Hinduism, but I don't know what it was that I had in the beginning. So why would I replace something if I don't even know about it? And I mean, if you think about the amount of hours I clocked in Hebrew school, you would think that I knew something, but unfortunately, nothing really penetrated. So I went back to college, and this is where I come back to our conversation we had before about how I became a Jewish studies major. That was the turning point for me. I came back and I said, you know what? I'm an academic. I come from an academic background. My parents are very well-read, very intellectual people. And I said, how else am I going to learn about something other than learn about it in college? That's how to learn about things. So I switched my major around and decided to go full throttle into Jewish studies. And I decided I really wanted to know my main goal was what does it mean to be a Jewish woman? So I wrote a play about that. I did what's called an ethnography where you speak to a number of people from an ethnic background. And I wrote a play as sort of a compilation of all of those interviews called We Are Eve. And that was my thesis for my graduation. And given the play that you did, are you starting to get exposure to things like Shabbos and eating kosher? Like, what are you learning as you're talking to all these people? Because I would think you didn't quite get that exposure when you were younger. Like, this is a different time in your life to look at it again. Yes. So this is where the name of your podcast comes in. I (laughs) did not know Shabbos was on Saturday. I thought it was just Friday night. And then I got an internship at the Hadassah Brandeis Institute, a feminist think tank at Brandeis. And so it was a Jewish feminist scholarship program. So it was me and I think six other Jewish girls and a Lebanese guy (laughs) (laughs) who also wanted to study Jewish women, which was awesome. For our first week, we were invited to Sylvia Barak Fishman, who was this incredible sociologist. And any sort of sociological study on American Jewry, she's got her hand in. She's modern Orthodox. And she invited all of us into her home for Shabbos. And I was told that we turn off our phones and our computers for Shabbos. And I was like, what? (laughs) I'm allowed to turn off my phone? My mind was blown. And we had the most fantastic conversations and the most delicious food. And we were just talking about meaningful things. And I was fully present. And I said, okay, I'm doing this forever. I'm going to keep Shabbos now. With the rest of the interns, we kept Shabbos, everyone kind of in their own way, but I was learning every week, okay, I can flush the toilet, okay, we warm up the food on this hot, warmer thing, right? I was slowly learning. And then I got back to Arizona State, and I looked around and I said, wow, I do not have one Jewish friend, not one. And I was like sitting in my dark living room, (laughs) like looking at my sitter on my first Friday night back. And I was like, this is horrible. I'm not going to do this. So 
I said, okay, I got to get going. I got to go somewhere. So I went to Hillel. I went to Chabad. And I really kind of found my place at Chabad. It was very funny because I was a very staunch feminist. I was always tabling and the, the Chabad rabbi would see me and say, Erica, hi. And I would literally like get up and like be like, I have to go to class now. Bye. <laughs> I was running in opposite directions from Orthodox Jews. And I walk into the Chabad house and I tell you, this rabbi's jaw was almost on the floor. He was just like, how did you get here? <laughs> I can't believe you're here. And he was amazing. Rabbi Shmuel Tichtel, he was amazing with me because I would ruffle all the feathers. Like he would give this beautiful departure and I'd be like, and what about the women? <laughs> <laughs> He's a huge static. And he really was so incredible to me. And he's the reason I started lighting candles. He said, I think you should start lighting candles on Friday nights. I was like, okay, I'll do that. That year, my last year of college, half the time I went out salsa dancing, the other half I was at Mahabad. It was like back and forth. I wasn't able to fully be there because really all of the relationships I had cultivated over my whole college career had been with my very wonderful non-Jewish friends. And I wasn't ready to totally give up my weekends at that point. But um, when I had this internship, what all of these young ladies were saying to me was very clear. They said, Erica, you don't know who you are as a Jew unless you go to Israel. And I was like, okay, I guess I got to go. Get me a ticket. So my rabbi got me in on one of the birthright my note trips. And then I had three weeks in between the trip ending and my ulpan starting. And I had signed up to go to an egalitarian yeshiva. And so I wanted at that point to be a rabbi. And so this more egalitarian place seemed like the right place to go. So when I went on the birthright trip, we, of course, went to the hotel. I had never been to the hotel before. And everyone, you know, of course, was hyping it up, this big, beautiful spiritual experience. And I was very excited. And I walk up there in my pashmina that they gave me, you know, because like they like the modesty police, which is amazing. And I go and I have my little piece of paper and I start writing my piece of paper. And I was writing, Hashem, hi, I'm here. I came here to figure out who I am. And I want to use this year because I was planning to be there for a year. I said, I'm, I want to use this year to really grow and reach my potential. And as I was writing the word potential, the pen would not write in that space. Like literally, I like carved it out in the piece of paper with the tip of the pen, but no ink would come out. I tried writing above it. I tried writing below it and to the side of it. It wrote fine. But in that space where I wanted to write the word potential, I was not allowed to write it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I get the point. And I took stock in that moment and I said, okay, I'm not ready to do anything hard to reach my potential. I want to say all these nice things. I want to have all these nice experiences. I'm not sure what kind of work I'm up to doing to reach my potential. But I'm going to get there. I'm not there now. And I, I walked up to the hotel and I held my paper in my hand and I said, Hashem, I'm not putting this in the wall because I'm not ready. But I am going to be ready. And when I'm ready, I'm going to come back and I'm going to put it in the wall. So we finished the birthright trip. And then I had three weeks in between 
the trip and my will pond starting to go somewhere, do something. I didn't know what. My mother, being a quintessential Jewish mother and, you know, having her daughter in a foreign country said, you have to have a safe place to go. Where's your home base going to be? And I was like, I don't know. I'll go to a kibbutz. I'll go to a hostel. I'll go exploring. And she's like, no, 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 no. So my father was a doctor and one of his patients was a Hungarian Holocaust survivor who happened to be a religious Jew. And when my parents think about her, they think of this like very Jewish, very powerful woman, but I don't think they thought of her as from Jew. Edith was her name, Edith Lowinger, a very, very special, amazing, amazing woman who I miss dearly to this day. She calls me and she says, you're going to go to Mrs. Liff and she's going to take care of you. And I was like, okay. So I call this lady that I have the phone number for and she says, hi, by the way, I live in this religious area. You might want to wear modest clothing. And I was like, what is a religious area? What does that even mean? (laughs) And I get there and it's Harnof in Jerusalem. And I felt like the biggest alien on the planet. I felt like I had just walked into another universe. And I walk into their home and it's not Mrs. Liff, it's Rebbitzin Liff. And it's not Mr. Liff, it's Rabbi Liff. And he's a Rosh Yeshiva. He's not just some regular rabbi. He's a Rosh Yeshiva. And I was like, how did I get here? (laughs) And I start speaking to them and talking to them. And I actually, at the time, had a cold. And she was really nursing me back to health. She would give me tea and soup and take care of me. And she was just so incredible. And the amateur academic in me was like, ooh, a social experiment. I can like see how they live. This is so fun, right? And kind of getting that peek into that world. I asked her a million questions. Why don't you wear to fill in? Don't you wish your husband helped out more and like did more things around the house? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. don't you want to study Kabara? Like all of those things, all of the questions she gave me, all these, you know, all of her answers. But what was really so incredible was I was living in her house with her and I was watching her live her life. And when you're a rabbi in Rabbitson, your whole life is filled with simchas and the opposite. It's like we're getting married we're getting divorced. We're having a baby. We lost a baby. We, you know, it's, it's all of the bookends of life, all of the greatest, most beautiful, most meaningful moments in life, and also the most painful and dark and overwhelming ones. And what I saw in her, which I was not expecting to see in an Orthodox Jew, which I was expecting to see in my yoga teachers, was this incredible sense of inner peace and calm. She dealt with all of these people, all of these phone calls, all of these visitors, each one, she was completely there for them. She was totally present. And she also didn't fly off the handle when things were hard. She had a core, which was her relationship with Hashem. She had a Muna and Bitachon. She really, truly believed that Hashem was in charge and she didn't have to understand everything. And she could fully and deeply feel other people's pain and their joy. And I looked at that and I was like, that's it. That's what I've been looking for all these years. That's what I want. But do I have to be Orthodox? (laughs) (laughs) So I remember falling apart at her kitchen table one morning. I was asking her all my questions, like the dregs of the questions. Like I had already asked her all my questions, but I was like grasping at straws. Why am I not Orthodox? Why am I not Orthodox? It must be because of this. It must be because of this. And I just suddenly heard all of my questions and realized, oh my gosh, these are these questions aren't real. 
I don't have an excuse anymore. And I just burst into tears like, oh my gosh, freaking out. And she's like, Erica, it's going to be okay. You're going to go watch a movie. You're going to take some deep breaths. (laughs) Don't make any sudden movements. Everything's going to be fine. She's not like, yeah, you got to be religious. Come on, let's go, let's go. And she never tried to macarve me. I went shopping while I was living with them. And I bought all this non-SNES clothing. And so I come in with all my shopping packs. She's like, ooh, what'd you buy? And I'm showing her. And she's like, that's so nice. (laughs) With this huge smile on her face, clearly getting such a kick out of it. There was no, like, haven't you lived in my house long enough? Don't you understand this is wrong? There was no shame. There was no judgment. It was just like she saw me and she loved me. I mean, what more does anybody want? So I realize, okay, I can't go to this place where I can learn with men and women because I'm not going to focus on the learning. I'm going to be focusing on the men and women aspect. Like I need to go and focus on learning Torah. I need to learn Torah. So I looked at all of the different seminaries and I went, you know, for a day to each. She taught at Sharim, Sharim College for Girls. So the Rebison says, you should go to Sharim. And I was like, no, it's so from. I am not going to be like that. Like, that's not realistic for me. And she said, just go for a class. So I said, like, okay, I had enough of cars to tove to this lady for letting me live in her house and all these things. Fine, I'll go. So I walk in. And for me, you know, for Erica the Feminist, it's almost all women teachers. Like, it's almost all rabbitsons. Like, there were very few rabbis. The rabbis taught halacha, and, like, there was a rabbi who taught ramcha, which was amazing. Then there were, like, a few other things. But the morning, all rabbitsons. You walk in, it's just, like, all of these people who are growing and excited and smart and well-educated. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is what this school is. This is not what I was imagining, Right. So I walk into my meeting with Robinson Pavlov and I was like, hi, my name's Erica and I don't want to be religious, but I do want to learn Torah and don't push me. It's <laughs> a nice intro. <laughs> and she was like, she laughed and she's like, I'm going to have to hold you back. I was like, what are you talking about? And I did become the most flaming Balchuva on the continent. And, you know, it was one of those things where what she said to me was so powerful. She said, Erica, I know you have a lot of questions and I want to help you get those questions answered. Anything that is bothering you, anything that you read that doesn't sit right with you, I will get you a tutor. I will give you time with a Rebetzin, like whatever you need. And if that person doesn't have your answer, that doesn't mean the Torah doesn't have the answer. That just means that person doesn't have the answer. I came into this place that was so supportive of my questions, that was so understanding, that was so willing to give me all of the time and all of the tools that I needed to really explore in depth. And that was the beginning of the beginning. So I have two questions coming out of everything you just shared. The first one is your parents inadvertently got this all in motion. So I'm wondering what they felt about this transformation going on with you. And secondly, you talked about like just how passionate you became about this in the perfect environment to become religious. But at some point that program ends and you have to figure out where you're going to go next. And it might feel like a step down from being like surrounded by exactly what you needed. So where do you go coming out of the program? So I stayed in the program for a while. (laughs) But hold on, remind me, what was the first question? How your parents felt about all this. Okay. My parents thought I was in a cult. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was writing a blog while I was in Israel and I wrote something. I don't remember what it was that just 
blew everybody up. And my parents freaked out. Like, what do you mean? Like it was, they were so much more comfortable with me being on an ashram than, you know, in Israel at seminary. So what happened was my mom and dad were coming to visit me for the first time since I had become religious. They came around Hanukkah time. And my mother's mother passed away two days before her flight to Israel. And my family did not always sit Shiva. So my mom literally went from the funeral onto a plane to Israel. So as anyone would imagine, she was a mess. And I'm her only child. And I've suddenly become this crazy religious zealot. And she was overwhelmed. And I was like trying to show her my life, but also giving, trying to give her space to have all of her grief and all of her feelings. And it was a very difficult couple of days. And then my Robinson called me, Robinson Pavlov called me and she said, do you think that your mother would want to sit Shiva? And I remember we were in the middle of a restaurant having dinner and I put my phone down. I'm like, mom, Robinson Pavlov wants to know if you want to sit Shiva. And in the middle of this restaurant, she just burst into tears. Yes, that's exactly what I want to do. So the Robinson, who's just the most amazing person on the planet, invited the whole seminary up to her living room and gave a class on the importance of being Menachem Avel, on, you know, visiting a mourner. Then she had all of the girls in the seminary and all of the rabbis and all of the Rebetzins sign up for time slots, half an hour at a time, to sit with my mother. And it was the most incredible healing day for her. And she left Israel saying, I get it. This is real, and this is beautiful, and these are amazing people, and this is, this is something really special. And thank God my, my father also saw that, and they both really respected it. And my father passed away five years ago, but when he lived near us, um, he, he spent the last years of his life in assisted living, and we would come and pick him up and bring him for Shabbos almost every week. And I would always get these calls on Thursday or Friday, am I coming for Shabbos, <laughs> right? And you know, this man who did all of the searching eventually in the last years of his life lived in a place that was you know, a kosher assisted living and spending a lot of Shabbos is really keeping Shabbos. So Baruch Hashem. And so you also mentioned that you stayed in the program a little bit longer, I guess, to like solidify that foundation of what you were learning. But then the point comes where, where you have to leave. So I would think that's a point you're thinking, where am I going to live? Am I going to meet that special someone? Like, what's my life going to be like going forward? So what happens next? After two years of seminary, I did one full year. And then the second year I was part-time. I also became a doula, which is a birth coach. And I was dating full-time. And I was also davening full-time. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally, I like davening was my job, my second year of seminary. I would daven for like 40 minutes every morning. So I was davening like crazy for my husband to appear. And he did. Thank God. So by the end of my second year, I was engaged and we got married right after Shavuos. So I was given an incredible gift, which was that I moved from seminary into a Jewish home that I was building with my husband. And I got to spend the first year of our marriage in Eretz Yisrael. We did our Shana Rishona together in Harnof with all of the people that we had collected, the two of us together that we loved and cared about and had an amazing, amazing start to our marriage that way. And he was raised religious or he has a similar story to you? Similar story. He got to Israel within like a couple weeks of me and we lived 10 doors down from each other in Harnof and didn't know until we were dating and ran into each other one day, which was hilarious. It was really incredible because he and I got to have our own journeys 
and and then really solidify and strengthen who we were. And then Baruch Hashem met and were able to start to build our home together. And something that I do want to tell you, which I tell basically everyone because I feel like it's so important. Our Shana Rishona, our first year, like one of the big things that we did is we went to therapy every week. And it's something that I like to tell and share because Baruch Hashem, I feel very blessed to have a marriage that I get to work a lot on myself in and that I really love and appreciate my husband. And I think that a lot of it is because in that foundation year, we did a lot of work. Like we didn't have a marriage to look at that was the marriage that we wanted in our lives. Although all of our parents were, of course, amazing and are amazing people. It just wasn't like we didn't know how to be married. And most people don't, let's be honest. And I am a very strong advocate of getting the help you need and getting it before it gets too crazy. And so having that foundation year to really talk through things so that we were laughing because it had only happened once or five times instead of 500 times, it was a very special thing to do in that first year. So you had this year in Israel, and then I guess you're figuring out where you want to settle as a family. And then how do you get into life coaching? So that came later. I did a bunch of work with Jewish nonprofits. I've worked for Partners in Torah. I was like the Shad Khan for all of that, which was so fun. I have worked in fundraising for Jewish organizations. I did a sales job. I've done a bunch of different things. But during COVID, I kind of hit a wall emotionally, spiritually, something. And I realized that I have a tremendous amount of strength in a number of areas. And I felt very strongly after being secluded in my home for such a long period of time with all of my wonderful, beautiful, energetic children that I needed to utilize those abilities elsewhere besides my home. And like here in Atlanta, we have a day school and I'm the neighbor of one of the principals. And she calls me and she said, hey, I heard you're not working right now. Do you want to come and do some subbing? I said, absolutely not. That sounds horrible. Thanks. <laughs> um, but she said, no, I like, you know, there's like this, you know, these girls and I think they could really use some, you know, like motivation and inspiration. And I know that like you have a lot to say on those topics. Like, what do you think? Will you come and just kind of talk to them and connect with them? I was like, oh, that I can do. Absolutely. So I, I went and it was a really special, amazing experience. And I really bonded with a lot of the girls. And that kind of started my trajectory towards coaching. I ended up really working more. I work with women who have many times all of the ingredients for a good life, but they're not enjoying it. They don't feel fulfilled. They feel overwhelmed. They are mad at their husbands. They're mad at their children. They're mad at their mothers, like normal life stuff. I call it like adulting emotional adulting. We have the whole adulting idea of like you have a job and you mow your lawn or you pay someone to mow your lawn and you have your mortgage or you have your rent payments and you're doing all those things. But are you still the same person that you were in high school, just older, doing those things, like playing house? And what it's really come into more now is that I, I want to help people to be satisfied with their lives, but also spiritually satisfied. And that really came from my relationship with my Robinson. Lately, I was just on this social media account called Faces of Orthodoxy, and I really just so enjoyed thinking about, you know, where I come from and why it's all connected. And it really is connected because my journey into Judaism really started with this Rebbitzin who lived a life that I wanted to live. And I realized with coaching, I want to help women live the lives they want to live. And I want to help women to not just 
you know, survive, but to really thrive and to feel connected to Hashem. And if they're keeping mitzvot and they're doing all of these things religiously, that they should love it and that they should feel excited and uplifted by it and not burdened. And also that they should feel that way in their marriages, that they should also feel that way in their parenting. And that's really what I feel like I'm here to do. My Rebbitzin gave so much of that to me, and I feel like I've been able to receive from so many amazing people. And I have, you know, all of these coaching techniques as well as like, you know, all of the spiritual learning that I've done over the years to really give this full package of like, what is a full life and what is a meaningful life and help people to move towards that. And I know that some of our listeners will have just heard your story, how inspiring it is, and also the coaching that you do. So how can they get in touch with you if they want to uh, reach out and learn more about your services? Email is fantastic. Erica with a K, Needleman, N-E-E-D-L-E-M-A-N, coaching at Gmail. But I'm also, you'll find me on all of the things, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. And yes, I would love to be in touch. I'm so grateful to be able to pass on what was given to me because I really do feel like it is such a gift, not just to live a Jewish lifestyle, but to love it. Beautifully said. So let me ask you one last question before we wrap the interview. I'm reflecting now on how you felt about Judaism as a kid when you were going to Hebrew school and feeling like you weren't getting much out of it. Like, What what would you go back and tell that girl who's experiencing Judaism in that way about how her life was going to unfold? (sighs) Patience. You know, it's a process and it's a journey. And I was exactly where I was supposed to be every step of the way. I have two daughters in middle school right now. And like one of the ways that like I kind of help them cope with being in middle school is like you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You got to go through it. Right. Mm -hmm. That book that like that, you know, we're going on a bear hunt. But that's what it is, is that like there's stuff that we just have to go through that is lame or painful. Like I, you know. There's a lot of life out there. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of lack of inspiration. There's a lot of all those things, but that doesn't mean that that's where it ends. So I would just tell myself, you know what? You've got a great map ahead. It's coming. It's all coming. It's all there. Be patient. Yeah. All right. Beautifully said. So Erica, let me just say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Thank you for all of your wonderful questions. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.